Let's open our Bibles, please, to Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. And it is 10 through 17. Ta-da. Let's pray. Father, as we approach this portion of our worship hour this morning, we're cognizant of the approach to a holy God. And um, holy art thou, and your call to us to be holy as you are holy. We see ourselves as uh, a needy people, uh, unworthy, yet you call us. And your calling is sure and steadfast, for it is through your Son, uh, our great sacrifice, Jesus Christ, upon which we have an avenue to come to you. And even now he stands at your right hand, interceding on our behalf. And so we request, Father, that you will be a searcher of our hearts, that you'll be a speaker of the word that is brought forth from your servant, and that hiding him is primos, that Christ is glorified in it all. And we'll thank you for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 9, verse 10, And the apostles, when they returned, told him all that they had done. And he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to a city called Bethsaida. And the people, when they knew it, followed him. And he received them and spake unto them of the kingdom of God and healed them that have need of healing. And when the day, and when the day began to wear away, then came the twelve and said unto him, Send the multitude away that they may go into the towns and the country round about and lodge and get victuals. For we are here in a desert place. And he said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fishes, except we should go and buy meat for all this people. For they were about 5,000 men. And he said unto the disciples, Make them to sit down by fifties in a company. And they did so and made them all to sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and brake and gave to the disciples to set before the multitude. And they did eat and were all filled. And there was taken up fragments that remained to them 12 baskets. Give our Lord thanks for the beauty of his word and the truth that it provides for us today. Back in 2010, I had the privilege to fly over to the Holy Land uh, to uh, turn over uh, the property that the Bethlehem Bible Presbyterian Church uh, was under the mission and turn it back to them. It was going to be their property. Uh, Gary Johnson was with me and uh, we finished up the business of that celebration and, and we had an extra day or so and uh, we hired a man to drive us, and we went from Jerusalem down through uh, uh, Bethlehem and, and all the way over to uh, the Dead Sea, across uh, Jericho, and all the way up to the Sea of Galilee. And we stopped there and, and ate at that time. Um, we got to a place where uh, the city of Capernaum is located, and the supposed location of, of what we uh, just read today, uh, the place of the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, 
Uh, it didn't look at that time like it did when Jesus was here. Uh, there was a Roman Catholic church there, and they had some beautiful mosaics of the scenes that have taken place. Uh, there were probably a half dozen big Hyundai buses up there with, uh, I don't know how many hundreds of Korean tourists there with cameras all around and uh, everybody trying to sell stuff from olive wood to uh, little trinkets of this and that, you know. And, and, and it was just difficult, as you know where you were. They said a desert place, uh, you know, something open to place yourself in that situation. Yet that's how it was. And I was there watching it all. Verse 10 says, And the apostles, when they returned, told him, meaning talked to Jesus, all that they had done. And he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city of Bethsaida. Uh, if you read the chapters earlier here in Luke, you find that they were very busy. There were a lot of things demanding of them. Uh, there was teaching and preaching, uh, healing, casting out demons, uh, and those were just some of the duties of the uh, disciples, but Jesus mostly who was engaged in that. Um, these who tra- the 12 who traveled with him, though, needed a break after such a, an engaging time. Uh, physically demanding and, and everything that they went through. So Jesus took them to this place and he invites them to rest with him. Beginning of verse 11, he said that there would be no rest. Um, and the people, when they knew it, followed him. If you're a student of the New Testament, you know that such occasions were not unusual. Wherever Jesus went, people followed. Wherever he went, crowds gathered. Uh, and he purposely had to get up very early in the morning or was up late at night to have that special time in prayer with his father. Uh, Jesus had these years of popularity. And to be honest with you, as you think of the world, popularity is something easily seen. Um, a sports team that wins is more popular and has many followers. A, a singer or a group uh, that has songs that are popular, many followers. A politician who offers Lots of good things, as many followers. But what's behind taking place here with Jesus is that he sees them as lost sheep in need of a shepherd. They were following him not to get something from him per se, but he saw them as they were. And I'm sure he saw them in their physical condition, that they were hungry, that they were kind of wandering people. Uh, That was evident to everybody. Uh, if you study the times that they were living here, uh, these were not the best of times. But what Jesus really saw was deep into their souls. Jesus looked at these people and saw that they were spiritually miserable and ignorant of the truth. That kind of doesn't sound too unfamiliar, does it? We look in the world that we live in, and despite a lot of, of, of folks who have great ideas how we can turn this thing around, you know, a lot of positive actions, a lot of good thoughts and do this and do that, we see people who are still spiritually ignorant and miserable within their own souls. And we recognize only Christ is the answer to meeting those particular needs, meeting the lost world. I look at the Gospels and it seems no matter where Jesus went, no matter what the discomfort or inconvenience was, he set aside himself in order to minister to these people. 
I read this and can't help but feel Jesus wanted to take these 12 to a place of rest because they were tired. They too were hungry. And Jesus himself. And yet that inconvenience was not anything that he would have set aside. Why don't you folks come back tomorrow, okay? He purposely felt that this was a ministry opportunity that he seized upon. And he was disregarding his own needs to minister to the lives of others. I think we often do the same thing for our loved ones and families. As parents, we see our children in particular need and come home from work or we've had a busy week or whatever and we're physically tired or there are demands that we have and yet we see them or a spouse or the whole family at large and we say, you know, my needs, whatever they are, I I, I surrender those needs in order that I can minister to those that are under my wing. We have needs, yet the compassion that Christ has for the lost, the compassion that he has for his children, is often displayed within our own lives, for which we thank him. People have ministered to us in their uh, difficult situation, and we've been blessed by it. And it's a necessity for our lives, and I think we need to pray that God would give us such an attitude at all times, because it brings blessing to all people, all parties. Next in our verse, text, it says, verse 12, And when the day began to wear away, then came the twelve, and he said unto, and said unto him, meaning Jesus, Send away the people, send the multitude away, that they may go into the towns and country round about and lodge and get victuals, for we are here in a desert place. I don't think that was publicly broadcasted. I think they kind of whispered to him on the side, Lord, it's late. Send them away. They can lodge for the night. Sun's going down. Hungry? Let them take care of themselves. The text here in the King James says desert place. Uh, The NIV translated as a remote place. ESV says a desolate place. Can you get the picture of what it's like? I couldn't that day when I was standing there because there were buses and roads and everything. But in this particular time, there was nothing. There was no uh, opportunity, no markets, there were no food trucks, there was no door dash for them to make deliveries. No hotels, no motels, no Airbnb. There was nothing. And Jesus recognized this particular situation. To put it into perspective, there's the unknown amount of time. As you read this text again between verse 11 and 12, how long did Jesus preach? We don't know. It could have been there all day. From the earliest hours until the time, you know, they're, they're, they're at, the, at, at the water's edge. And, and he said, there's no place for us to go. And he ministered and then continued to do so. So it had been a very long day. In the disciples' minds, there was this understanding. If they were going to eat, they would have to have the people leave pretty soon. And the people are going to have to leave pretty soon. They would have to be told... Folks, it's time to leave. Service is over. But nobody moved. <laughs> nobody, nobody made an announcement. And to add to this dilemma, Jesus commands his disciples in verse 13, give them to eat. The disciples are hungry. They're tired. They see the crowds, all the things that are on there. He says, Lord, you... You need to help in this particular situation. And he turns to them and he says, you provide for the needs of these people. 
You give them something to eat. The response is typical. We have no more than five loaves and two fishes, except we should go and buy meat for all these people. The solution was logical, but very impractical. You know, five loaves, two fishes. And who would provide the funds if they were going to provide money, you know, go out to eat or, or bring food in or whatever? Who's going to feed, it says 5,000 men. It says nothing about the uh, women that came with them or the children. There was at least 10,000 people on this hillside. Who's going to provide all of these things that were there? How often are we pressured into similar situations? I'm not talking about choices of what to wear for a party or um, should I mow the lawn today or tomorrow, but I'm talking about real difficult choices. How is my uh, hospital bill going to get paid for the surgery? We're living on a shoestring. What are we going to do without both of us working? How are we going to make it with these gas prices? This is all that we have left for the week. What's really going to happen to us? In life, that's happening. We all come up with various uh, calamities, various very difficult decisions, and we, like the disciples, say, but this is all we got. This is logical. This is what we're facing. What are we going to do? How are we going to make it? The solution the disciples presented was completely impractical. Five loaves of bread and two fishes to feed over 10,000 people. If you remember back at the end of verse 11, the text said, and he healed them that had need of healing. This is a report as we enter into this particular situation. What was Jesus referring to here? What was he looking upon them and what did he tell them to do? Take two aspirin and come back and see me in the morning. A little hydrogen peroxide and then bandage it and it'll heal by itself. All you need to do is take a couple of these leaves and chew them up and mix them with some water from the, from the, uh, the sea here and, and, and put it on as a poultice and it'll be taken care of. Is that was his reference to healing needs of the people that were there? And he healed them that had need of healing means exactly what it has always meant and always will be. A touch or a word from the incarnate Son of God healed them immediately, perfectly, and completely. Did the disciples see those who were healed? What do you think? Speculation? Of course. You know, Jesus is ministering. They're around the, the, their master, seeing the things that are going on. As he's teaching, they're listening. As he's healing, they're observing. They saw what took place. It was no sleight of hand. These were real miracles that had happened. Don't forget they were also with him in times past. They were aware of his power. Blind being restored to sight, the lame walking, the dumb speaking. Could they not at this time come to the bread of life and say, Lord, we have need. We come to you for help. Yet are we often too much different? You know, we know about Jesus. We know what he's done and what he can do and what he will do. 
And maybe it's not how are we going to feed the 10,000 with just a small amount of what we've got, our shoestring budget, but maybe it's what's going to happen to our church? Or what's going to happen to my family or to my job or to my health or to my country? You know, we've got all the evidence and we've got all the examples, the first-hand knowledge and the things that we have read in the Bible and experienced ourselves. We've tasted and seen how good the Lord is, how he redeemed me from the pit of hell and brought me to be his only son in my sight. I look to him and he says, you're my heavenly father. And then all of a sudden we come to a place in life and say, what are we going to do? We're like the disciples. Practical. But this is all the money I've got. Or this is all the things that I've got. I read the bill or I see all of these other things. And we never think, or at least we don't think, to completely lean it upon him to say, Lord, we need your help. We need your hand. We need you to make the difference to this situation that I'm facing, the things that I am looking for to be an answer. Just like the disciples, we are often focused on what seems to be the most obvious obstacle that we face. That Goliath. And he stands there and he's shouting all types of things at us like, you're nothing and your God is nothing. And we think that. We approach our relationship to the living God by saying, there are certain times that I have that relationship. But he didn't redeem us for certain times. He brought us into his family full time, all the time. We completely forget the miracles that have been performed in our very lives and continually being performed daily. We forget at times of God's saving power, bringing us from the depths of that depravity to the glorious heights of sonship. We forgot the time when the doctor said, you know, I don't know what happened, but it's a miracle. Or when the patrolman said, by all rights, you should have died in that accident. Or times and times again, things happen like that. How did that happen? Boy, we were lucky. You know, boy, the stars aligned properly that time. But it's exactly what the disciples saw, not only in this particular moment, but through their time with Jesus. Miracle and miracle and miracle again displaying who he was. And they never thought to say, Lord, what are we going to do? How are we going to take care of these people? If my God has graciously done all that for me and so much more, why then would I allow any obstacle to keep me from freely asking for his aid? And then, once I have asked, to implicitly entrust that particular need into his hands. You know, to merely say that I will pray and then continue to worry doesn't allow me to continue to trust that he will accomplish that task perfectly in his own time and according to the best way. Sometimes when I ask him for something and I look down the road later on, I says, boy, I'm glad he didn't answer according to what I asked. You know, (laughs) I'd have been in trouble, you know. But he answered my request in his time and according to a way that he knows best, according to a parent. And any parent knows that. When your children come to you, even grandparents know that. 
And they come to you and says, Grandpa, would you, you know, and he says, no, you can't, you know. Um, little Henry, we're out into the chainsaw, cutting up some logs, and Henry says, could I try that, you know. <laughs> I says, Henry, you know. So he goes in, the, goes in the garage and he comes out with a little hatchet, you know, and so he's going to do his part, you know. And I, and I explain to him, I show him how dangerous it is. And his little heart was broken because he wants to do everything. But had I let him do that, who knows what would have happened. And so our Heavenly Father looks at us and he says, you're asking out of ignorance, you're asking out of immaturity, you're asking out of naivety, yet I will answer your prayer in a time and a place that it is best for you to know. And he said to his disciples, make them to sit down by fifties in a company. And they did so. He made them all to sit down and he took the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, blessed them and break it and gave to the disciples to sit before the multitude. Mark's gospel, the same occasion, it says, and he commanded them to all sit down by companies upon the grass, the green grass, and they sat down by ranks, by hundreds and by fifties. Putting those two passages together, you've got a hundred rows of people with fifty in each. Here's a hillside, the Sea of Galilee's down here, moves on up and up and up and up, and he's got them all sitting on there uh, to orchestrate this whole thing. He takes the bread cakes, he lifts them up, blesses them, thanks his heavenly father for that particular provision. As he breaks off these pieces of bread and puts them into the baskets, he distributes them with the disciples along with the fish to the people. You can imagine how that must have been. You're hungry, you're tired, and you set the, see these things. And, and, and this is, it must have seemed like some, of course they didn't know Las Vegas, but some Las Vegas magic trick, you know? He just keeps on doing it and more and more and more and more and continue to meet the particular provision of each and every one. The loving and compassionate Jesus meeting the needs of all who came to him and I think giving the disciples a tremendous practical lesson in life. Provisions. Verse 17, and they did eat and were all filled and there was taken up of the fragments that remained to them 12 baskets. If you're hungry all day, obviously the bread and fish was sufficient to meet whatever need, but they were filled full. Imagine how much that had been. Imagine how great that, that display was, the joy that was brought upon these people. And there was enough to feed over 10,000 people to the point that they could eat no more. And 12 baskets of leftovers were there for them. Wow. Wow. What blessings what have God given to you? What baskets of leftovers has he provided for you in life? Materially, I was thinking of some, you know, in our nation, that's obvious. You don't have to go too far in other countries if you've ever visited a third world nation to find out, well, I can't wait to get back home. And we have a lot to complain about, and we do. <laughs> you know, a lot to pray about, and we do. But there's no country like this. You know, the provisions that we have, food, vehicles, homes, clothing, 
health care, a police force. I've been in a number of third world countries where uh, they're hardly paid much of anything and you better recognize that their intent is to get whatever they can at that road stop. And I remember our times in the Philippines where you know, the guys will pull over and you see the one in front and you see him going, he reaches in his pocket and he gives him the, his license and he passes it over to him and the cop takes him and looks, puts it in and gives him back his license and he says, go ahead. You know. Time and time again, you know, um, and obviously there may be those cases in this country, but just generally speaking, the material things that we have are just absolutely phenomenal. Spiritually, leftovers, our salvation, Bibles, you know, everywhere, electronically, in paper, they're everywhere. In places that, you know, they starve for carrying the scriptures themselves. I was also thinking literally the tons of Christian materials. Christian bookstores, and I don't always tote them as being the best because a lot of them are this, there to make money with a lot of other garbage, but there's a lot of stuff, materials, that are good in provision for our spiritual needs. Church life. It is a blessing. We talked the other week about, you know, our worship is constantly throughout the week, all the time, 24-7. But it is collectively beginning our, our week in God's house. This is a blessing, you know, to be with each other and to corporately worship together. Ministry, brothers and sisters in Christ. Unique to have this horizontal relationship, you know. It is a basket that overflows again and again and again. Spiritual leftovers, material leftovers. And who gave them to us? We surely didn't ask for it. We surely didn't earn it. But those are things from God's hands that he has provided. I want you to listen to what Paul says, the very uplifting words to the church at Ephesus. Now unto him that is able to do him, meaning God. He is able to do. In other words, God has the ability. Able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Look at those leftovers. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. The blessings that we have, and there's that old hymn, you know, count your blessings, name them one by one. Um, sometimes we don't really consider the abundance of that which has been given to us. God is able to. Well, why didn't you do this last time? We said, I got something better for you later on, you know. Yet he's able to do above, exceedingly above, all that we ask or think in abundance for us. Do you think the disciples ever forgot that day? On the hillside there, outside of Bethsaida, and they were hungry and they heard Jesus, they saw Jesus, and they were fed to overflowing. You know, it's like one of those... Uh, uh, restaurants, you know, eat all you can for X number of dollars, you know. Do you think they ever forgot that the disciples ever, you know, it's amazing. 
I think, you know, they were amongst the people who benefited themselves because they were hungry. And, and they ate. And then they got to walk amongst them and pick up all of the leftovers, you know, and the people were saying, boy, that was great, thanks. That had to be burned in your heart. It had to be emblazoned upon your, your mind in order to find these things. I'd ask you to turn your Bibles to Matthew 14. Matthew's account is the same that we have in Luke 9. Except there's a few little things I want you to see. Matthew 14. Here, beginning in verse 22... This is what takes place immediately following the feeding of the 5,000. Okay? Luke doesn't have that, but Matthew pens it for us. And straightway, in other words, and immediately, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitude away. Okay, You see what took place. You know, they've fed, they've collected all of the leftovers, they put them in. Now Jesus says, okay, guys, get into the boat and head out. You need a rest. And Jesus says, I'll take care of the crowds. I'll send them away. I'll send them back home. 23. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a spirit! And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, is it I? Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me to come unto thee on the water. And he said, come. And when Peter was, was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind bolsterous, he was afraid. He began to sink and he cried, saying, save me, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Interesting. Do you think Peter was amongst the disciples who watched all the things that had transpired on the hillside? Of course he was. Peter's a dominant personality. He wants to be involved in everything. He's the talkative one. He's the one who jumps out. And I'll bet you he was there making sure everything was done and accomplished. He watched the miracles as well as all of the other miracles that had taken place. And yet here it comes to a place. And when he saw the winds bolsterous, he was afraid. He was confident in Christ until there was some opposition bolsterous winds running contrary. In other words, they were going from you know, east to west, and all of a sudden from west to east, the winds were coming in, and the waves are coming up. And all of a sudden, Peter says, wait a minute, this doesn't look real good for me. And everything that he knew was set aside. 
Everything that he was confident in was pushed away. And all of a sudden he began to sink. He threw away the leftovers and began to sink. Jesus said, come. And Peter responded by faith. But Peter allowed doubt and fear to rule in the moment, forgetting the blessings of the Savior past, his leftovers. We're not that difficult. Again, we're, we're just like the disciples. We are confident in the things that Christ has given us. But when a time comes when there's a little opposition, a little strong voice, something I read, something I hear, the way somebody acts or whatever, all of a sudden that's opposition and, and therefore I, I'm, I'm afraid or therefore I'm going to be, i just going to give up. And I lose everything that I had gained by walking by faith. The winds of opposition kick up and our eyes look around and we see all of the what-ifs, the doubt whisperers in my heart. We're alone. There is indeed much to fear. Nobody understands, nobody cares, and we begin to sink because our eyes are off of Jesus and it's on the world. It's on the world. We've forgotten the leftovers. We've forgotten his promises. We've ignored his presence, and we tried to do it on our own. Wednesday nights, you know, Folks come and pray about various things that are listed on there. And some are of great concern, more concern than others. Other things we continue to pray for, and it seems like there's never going to be an answer, but it just we continue to pray. Some we don't even say to anybody else. You know, this is a, this is a, a, a secret prayer that I've got, you know, something I'm holding back on. But it's a bothersome to me. And it continues to roll around in the mind. Sometimes we go to bed at night and we're physically exhausted, but upstairs here, it's just continuing to whiz around and I can't sleep because I'm thinking of this or I'm thinking of that or whatever it is. And it continues to go instead of saying, Lord, I give it to you. And I can trust him because of what he's done in the past. Because there's not been a time of failure. There's not been a time of disappointment or discouragement. I'm just going to trust in you. The man came to Jesus and he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And I think that's where we're all at. You know? I believe what you've done. I believe what you've said. But I'm in a situation because of my immaturity or my weakness or whatever. Help my unbelief. Help me to do what's right. Help me to have my eyes focused upon you. Um, our last hymn is Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And for some... Uh, it's a hymn that speaks of salvation. We're looking at the world and, and, and as such, and, and keep my eyes on the Lord, and he'll, he saves me. But I think more so for others, and the author of this particular hymn wrote it with an understanding of, of the allurements that the world has to pull us away from Christ. And turning my eyes upon Jesus, keeping my focus on him, it, and, and I'm not talking about some little you know, statue or, or something like that, you know. I'm talking about who he is, everything that he's spoken of himself about, all that Christ is. I'm going to trust him, leave it in his court, allow him to deal with it, and I'll go forward with that confidence. A lot of things this week happening, a lot of things next week, some things you don't even know about. Only God does. So it's best to start out on the right foot that way. Let's pray.
Father, we'll confess today that we, just like these 12, have heard much and seen much. And we've been amazed. We've been overjoyed. We've been lifted up. We've been strengthened. And we've purposed in our hearts to serve you faithfully. But we've also have to confess that there are times when opposition comes. And it's blown us right in our face to go not in your way, but to go in the way of the world. We've tried to solve things logically, but it just doesn't work. And we're still faced with these woes. May, Father, the words of Jesus lay upon our hearts. Why did you doubt? Why hold him back with little faith? Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Not only for this coming week, but throughout life. May our walk with you be close. May it be strong and may it be powerful. May it reflect the grace that you've given to us in each and every day. In Christ's name, amen.